Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Oh, that. Welcome to another... Yeah, that... Ofed, Ofed, Ofed. Once for all delivered. We're going to get busted for plagiarizing ourselves. <laughs> I'll see. Yeah. There was a... This has nothing to do with anything, but that's happened sometimes in the music industry where guys get sued for plagiarizing themselves. <laughs> it's hilarious because different it's people hilarious. end up owning the rights to... Th- like uh, John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival had a notable lawsuit like that because he sound Legend. when he went solo he sounded too much like himself when he was in Creedence. That's true. Also, a fantastic band. Uh, on the side note, uh, as we're recording here, my dad and I actually uh, we we just got tickets to uh, ZZ Top. Uh, in this in uh, oh, yeah? June, yeah, I am so much looking forward to that. Dusty Hill died last year or so, but uh, they replaced Sad. him and kept going. Yeah, but they're oh man, I got I, I want to see I want to see them so bad. But uh, I, on my list is also now John Fogerty. Next time he's in the U.S., this is your authority on all things classic rock. Once for all, delivered. <laughs> <laughs> I am Andrew Smith at the (laughs) Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. (laughs) And I am Caleb Castro, recording from the Rock Valley United Reformed Church in uh, Rock Valley, Iowa. So what do you think of the Allman Brothers? Ah, you know, I haven't dove real deep into their catalog. They have... Some songs that obviously I've heard from the radio and stuff that seems fine. You know, one of the, you know, when you talk about like Southern rock like that, one of the real ironies of of Fogarty and CCR is that they have all this like Southern, we're from the Bayou type music, and they were from (laughs) San Francisco. They're from uh, Lodi, Lodi, California. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They were were about uh, what? just a little over an hour from where i grew up yeah (laughs) so you're as southern and born on the bayou (laughs) as they were exactly but the uh speaking of the south speaking or not (laughs) chris christianity and culture part x of x or x of y because there will probably be more (laughs) but um so nice transition we (laughs) yeah we started we've started this series been working through this series on christianity and culture we've done some uh, introductions to foundational issues like nature and grace we did a brief historical survey we did some biblical exegetical discussion of romans 13 and i guess now we've arrived at the part where the rubber starts to hit the road different views of church and state different views of systems and schemes by which christianity and culture intersect and interact or in some cases don't so what we want to do starting here today is 
uh, basically set out a brief taxonomy of the various views and offer our uh, comments, critiques, commendations of various views, and and maybe we'll we'll land this plane somewhere actually with what we think and what we want to see, <laughs> or we won't, and we'll keep it an entire mystery. Yeah, we'll just do all this setup to go nowhere exactly. because I mean it's us. What do you expect? It's just it's it's spite. So. So. I suppose we have a few different views to go through and look at. So where do we want to start? Well, we got, we had mentioned in the previous episodes that at least in the Reformed community, uh, since in, in the previous episodes, we talked a little bit about Lutheranism, uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, Anabaptism. There's other more views still. But for us with the Reformed position, which we see as the biblical uh, position, there's actually three strands. Um, that is theonomy. That is uh, Kyperianism, and that is what you can call radical two kingdoms uh, or a reform two kingdoms, which from the name, if you again listened to when we first spoke about the Lutheran position on the two kingdoms, you can you can hear uh, the parallel there. We won't go super into whether like where those parallels lie. But those are the three general positions. There, there, there are a couple more um, that you might find in uh in puritan circles but uh these are somewhat of the the main ones so uh what do we think yeah. of starting out with theonomy and um distinguishing not only what theonomy is but how it compares with that phrase theocracy which we brought up when giving a history of of the church and state yeah so theonomy is a view that emerged in the mid to late 20th century largely uh, it was popularized by uh, such uh, writers as Greg Bonson. Uh, he was actually one of the later ones. Uh, Ruzis John Rushdooney, uh, Gary North. Uh, those are some of the big names you'll hear associated with theonomy. Now, one of the things about theonomy is that theonomy itself isn't really a unified movement. It's not really a, there's not really like one particular theonomy that you can point at and say that's it. Uh, but there are some general attributes, general distinctives of theonomy that would distinguish it from other views. Basically, theonomy seeks to establish a society that is governed according to the civil law that is set forth in the Old Testament, that is set forth in the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, that essentially what is what is set down there as a code of laws for Old Testament Israel is essentially the same code of laws that we should be using in our society today. And so it's it's looking then in, in whatever iteration you come across then for uh, to derive not only a general ethical principles like moral general moral patterns uh and rules of conduct from from scripture as a whole but it it, it takes the civil law from the old testament as abiding as perennial continuous right as, as uh not only a principle but as as authoritative from god correct is that is, right so that'd be a good way to put that yeah 
Yeah, so what you're describing about the general moral principles or to use the language of the Westminster Confession, general equity. Uh, theonomy goes beyond that, basically, yeah, trying to implement the laws, the civil laws as laws. Uh, Greg Bonson, who is probably be the form of this I'm most familiar with, um, he said that the uh, mosaic civil laws ought to be implemented in, this was a term he always used, exhaustive detail, which exhaustive detail is pretty exhaustive and detailed it means all of it down to the uh, most minor details now this issue of general equity as it pertains to theonomy that can get a little thorny because there's been this uh, sort of new category that has emerged people who would call themselves general equity theonomists and uh, it's a bit of a, a nebulous thing i think where uh, you can see in there people who might be more close to a theonomy as more uh, classically understood. I mean, as classically as it can be, because it is a later innovation uh, where it's implementing the civil law. Uh, more so something along the lines of, you know, a society that is governed by the moral principles of the moral law, which that could take or that could overlap significantly with other forms. Um, and, and this really is one of the recurring problems with theonomy. Like I said, it's not a unified movement. A lot of people talk about theonomy, but a lot of people mean different things when they describe it. Yeah, so that's that's the stickiness uh, already. And, and it, it becomes also in that way uh, a problem, right? Because you have uh, then anything that looks like it wants to use uh, Christian principles in uh, the civil governments to, to, to apply uh, moral principles in legislation or whatever ends up being, not, not in general, it ends up being uh, seen as like, oh, well, you're a theonomist then because, you know, you want to you wanna bring back uh, the old covenant basis. You, you think that there needs to be a conflation of church and state which is then uh, theocracy, right? That, that tends to be the charge. Right. And I think we'll get into that, I think, a little more when we start looking at the uh, modern two kingdoms view. Um, unlike Caleb, I don't really particularly like to use the radical two kingdoms or R2K label, and I'll probably get into why here in a little bit. I think we can actually put a more precise identifier on it. Well, that's a serious charge. I don't because I yeah I don't I don't call them R two K or radical or reform two kingdoms. I uh, but I am using the terms that um, people tend to know them by. Uh, but I yeah I you know yeah. that I, I don't agree with those terms even being applied. It's a misnomer. Okay. Well, I just brought <laughs> it up and we can edit Fight this out because you'd already no, we're leaving it. You'd already said it in what we recorded here today. Exactly. So. Exactly. Um, We're leaving this. Fight me, Andrew. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is one of the issues you have with um, anybody. You know, there's been such a pushback against the onomy uh, that it results in anything, anyone trying to bring any applicability of any biblical law forward into the world in which we presently live will result in accusations of theonomy or theocracy. Now, some distinctions we need to make in there. There are forms of theocracy that are not theonomic. You can look, for instance, at older 
uh, Puritan and Reformed theology, you can look, for instance, at the original Westminster Standards prior to the American Revisions, and they were a form of establishmentarianism. That was not theonomic, because the Westminster is very clear, and this is one of the issues with theonomy in chapter 19 of the threefold division of the law. There is the moral law, which forever doth bind all uh, unregenerate persons as well as regenerate persons. It's binding on all people, all creation forever. But then there is these other categories. There is the ceremonial law, which those ceremonies are abrogated. They are fulfilled in Christ. They are the types and shadows that point to him, and so they no longer bind. And then there is also these civil laws, which the confession says, um, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm trying to go for memory here. But basically, uh, the civil laws were given to Israel as a body politic, so as a particular nation for a particular time. They were the laws to govern that nation, and they cease with the end of that nation. Uh, the Israel of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, uh, which ended fully and finally those laws go away with that except wherever the general equity comes in which is that essentially there are moral principles that can be derived from the mosaic civil laws so just maybe to use one example I believe it is in exodus chapter 21 there's the laws against uh, striking a pregnant woman and punishments prescribed uh, for damages done to a pregnant woman and her unborn child that essentially if damage is done to the baby then there must be repayment eye for an eye life for life etc so what would be the general equity of that well we can derive from that civil law a moral principle that the unborn children are worthy of the same uh, protections uh, as persons that are born that essentially human, the unborn child is a human being and worthy of the same uh, moral and legal protections of any other human being. So this is why, for instance, we can make a moral case and make legal application of opposing abortion to go right to the most hot button, perhaps a general equity issue of our day. Uh, with Zacharias or Sinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, he, he has that note uh, uh, at the top of page 495, if you're using the uh, print PNR uh, version for reference. Uh, he says that the form of government established among the Jews was the best, not absolutely, but only for that time, that country, for that time, that country and nation. So he'll say uh, that, that God did not, for this reason, institute the form of government that all nations and ages might be bound to it, but only that his own people might, referring to the Jews, by this discipline be separated for a time from the surrounding nations. In this uh, this book I have here in front of me, the uh, Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology, which I have uh, referenced in previous episodes, uh, listen here to the, the definition of now, like, theocracy. This is a definition from, of theocracy from N.H.G. Robinson, who says, Just as democracy signifies government by the mass of the people in any society or by their duly elected representatives— so theocracy signifies government by God or by his representatives. Ancient Israel provides the most notable example of a theocracy. Since, however, the will of God is, and listen here, the will of God is not an empirical reality, as is the will of the people, so what is it that's actually experienced, or of any other constitutional group, 
A theocracy is always more of an ideal than a fact and belongs primarily to the sphere of profession and faith rather than to that of plain practice. Now, we could perhaps quibble on on that, that phrase that said the will of God is not in an empirical reality as is the will of the people, uh, but that I don't really like the wording of. Uh, but the main point is in, is the statement that a theocracy is always more of an ideal. There, there is no ability to reach a a true, pure, rightly administered and practiced theocracy, God rule, until the new heavens and new earth. So I think that that's a... That's essentially what Ursinus is also saying in there. So they're striving for theocracy then uh, must be understood then in that sense of an ideal. But is it possible to have uh, uh, an earthly practice in chasing after a theocracy, um, having Christian rulers ruling over Christian nations according to the will of God through Scripture as a whole? And I think actually... The answer to that question might come later as we look at some of these other views. Exactly, <laughs> But that's the heart of the issue. Just a few more kind of kind of closing notes on theonomy, though. Uh, so why would we say, for instance, that we're not going to implement the Mosaic law in exhaustive detail, as a Greg Bonson, for instance, would say? Well, for one thing, we've looked already at Romans 13 in some detail, so I don't want to retread all that ground. Uh, but one of the things we see there in uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing to Christians under Rome, and Rome was certainly not an Israelite uh, Mosaic law type nation. Now, there are things in Romans 13 that pertain to the moral law and moral government. We've talked about those already. There are obligations on citizens and rulers alike based on the moral law that that text prescribes. Uh, but what Paul is not saying is submit to the governing authorities insofar as they agree with the Mosaic civil law. He's saying submit to the civil authorities that you have. You know, with the qualifications we've talked about, about tyranny and the like and and other issues. Um, so we don't see uh, any mandate for the continuation of these civil laws. And that's why we have things like our uh, confessional teaching and what our Sinus wrote also about how uh, Israel as a body politic, meaning no being no more, the laws also go away with it other than the general equity. Well, that is all that we have for you in this day uh, and, and at this time, uh, in this this hour and this minute and second that you are listening. Yes. Now, this is Once for All Delivered. We hope that we haven't scared you off. We hope that we haven't put you to sleep. We hope that rather that... <laughs> We edified you and or that, that we were utilized in in the edification and in building up in the knowledge and things of scriptures. Now, as, as always, if you have any uh, comments, feedback, suggestions, uh, we would really love to hear from you. OFAD podcast at Gmail dot com. Do interact with us on social media and uh, yeah, um, help us with that pithy sign off. Uh, so that every single time that uh, 
you know, you hear us ending an episode, you can be like, ha boy, that was that was smart and pithy. I feel like these guys are really funny and good at the things that they do because they gave uh, an intelligent sign off uh, statement to me. Because otherwise people just think we're hacks and we don't know anything. Which there is some truth to that. But that's that's what we're here for. We're here to learn together, right? And, and along with the listeners too, and, and hope that this is uh, something that, that builds us up and contending earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. You see what I did there? Hey, name call back. I said the thing. You said the thing. You said the line. <laughs> air horn. Insert air horn. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that's it. Uh, Andrew, you have anything to say? Mm, nope, I guess. Pithy sign-off <laughs> phrase. Right. Pithy sign-off phrase and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding member, Eric Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered. Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, the, uh, burger, 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 burger,